0: All right, everybody, let's get this started. So previously, way back in episode two, we covered the normal newborn. Today, Ashley and I are going to be talking about the abnormal newborn. So we're going to kind of do it a little bit like question style, uh, question style. Slash
1: hodgepodgey. Yeah,
0: exactly. So this will just be put together. (laughs) You guys know from listening to us, we usually make a pretty good product. So, we're not going to cover any of the, like, antenatal testing uh, type stuff, but we're going to s- basically start from the delivery room. We have a baby who is born via C-section, comes out, initially does okay, then starts to have some grunting, nasal flaring, uh, retractions, and tachypnea. What's going on with this baby, Ashley? Ashley?
1: Uh, transient tachypnea of the new door, newborn, TTN.
0: TTN, yes, exactly. So typically this occurs in our babies who are born via C-section. Uh, if you get an x-ray, the classic finding is going to be some fluid in the fissure. So you may get that image on your test. Um, so look for that. And then you can have some increased interstitial markings as well. We're really just going to support the babies through this and typically lasts about 48 to 72 hours and then typically results.
1: Yeah, it should just go away on, like, just with support after um, no more than 72 hours. All right. How about this one there, Rayburn? (laughs) You you got this baby. They come out. They're not breathing. What is that? They're just not breathing.
0: Well, I'm at a warm, dry stim first. NRP.
1: Well, yeah, that's true. But there's a name for it. It's called apnea, right? (laughs) So there's... There are two things. There is primary apnea, which is what you just described, which can be overcome by stimulation. So the warm, dry stim of the NRP. However, then there is secondary apnea, which really is when you have to give positive pressure. So this is basically like it doesn't resolve or it kind of resolves and then it goes back to like gasping and then no apnea. That's called secondary apnea. And you have to give positive pressure ventilation for this.
0: All right, very good.
1: The other thing to know is that apnea is defined as 20 seconds of no breath. So like anything less than that is actually just periodic breathing.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually a big point clinically as well. So a parent comes in and says their kid stopped breathing, and you're like, ask how long it is, and they're like, oh, a few seconds. That's not true apnea. you got to hit that 20-second mark, which if you count it out in your head, 20 seconds is actually a really long time.
1: Should we talk about some of the um, differential diagnosis for apnea? Like what can be the cause of apnea?
0: So some things you can, you should consider if you have true apnea over that 20-second mark is some metabolic problems. So hypoglycemia, that's a big one. Hypocalcemia. Uh, neonatal anemia can also give you apnea. Um, certainly cardiac causes, consider a PDA there. Uh, seizures, unfortunately, a neonatal seizure that can present with apnea. Uh, infection, definitely, it's always sepsis, right? So infection, sepsis, that's going to be a cause of apnea. Uh, and then if there is some kind of swallowing dysfunction in the newborn, um, that, can ca- that can present as apnea as well. So just consider those in your differential.
1: Okay, well, what would be a, um, a neonatal resuscitation without discussing RDS? Yeah. Respiratory distress syndrome, which, of course, I'm sure all of our pediatricians know this, but I'm going to just say it anyways, is a surfactant deficiency lung disease, basically. It used to be known like as Highland membrane disease. Um, but basically, they don't have surfactant, and so all their little alveolar collapse, and then they can't breathe, and they get cyanotic, and they retract, and they grunt, and they look like crap, and you got to help them out.
0: Yep, exactly. And sometimes you gotta give them surfactant if they're young enough. But most of the time, this is gonna be a supportive thing like TTN as well. This may be one as well that you're going to get presented with an, an X-ray, um, and you're going to see some nice air bronchograms in that classic ground glass appearance of the chest X-ray in a newborn. So this is certainly something you can get an image on your test
1: for. Risk factors for RDS, um, diabetic mothers, and actually what's interesting is diabetic mothers can have RDS Even without prematurity. So the biggest risk factor for RDS is prematurity. But this next one, like diabetic mothers can have RDS in full-term kids because insulin actually deactivates uh, the cells that make, like deactivates the insulin in the lungs during um, in utero. So diabetic mothers, prematurity, and then C-section delivery can also uh, increase the risk.
0: All right, very good. All right, so staying on the lines of respiratory issues uh, in our neonates, this one's going to take a little bit of time to develop, but bronchopulmonary dysplasia, um, or really you can think of it as baby COPD or baby asthma because it kind of works in the same way. This typically is defined after an infant's been on oxygen for 28 days um, or requires continued oxygen after 36 weeks corrected gestation. Uh, we're going to treat bpd with diuretics. And interestingly, they may ask you, may actually present you a kid that's on diuretics and ask for a potential electrolyte abnormality. Any idea what that
1: could be? Probably something with like salt or calcium or something.
0: Yeah, exactly. Which so one hy- is it? hypocalcemia is going <laughs> to be the case here. So, but you're right.
1: Oh yeah, that makes sense. All right, David, we are back in the delivery room. Okay? The baby's come out, the baby's fine, but afterwards you're like, oh, that's kind of weird. Hmm, what's that like uh, little, it's a little bump on his shoulder? Chest. What's he, the most common a, cause?
0: Is he a big baby?
1: He's, he's a big, he is a chunker, he's like 10 pounder. You know, the whole family's oh, yeah. like, oh my gosh, look at how big this baby is, they're so proud of it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> he's got a broken clavicle most likely.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the most common uh, bone to be fractured uh, during birth, which makes sense. It's a little soft. It goes fine. You don't do anything for it.
0: There is a palsy that is associated with the clavicle fracture.
1: I think it's herb. Is that it? It is herb. It is ERB's
0: palsy. So that's going to be a C5 to C7 uh, inj- nerve injury, and you get the waiter's tip deformity.
1: Oh yeah, where they kind of hold their arm internally rotated at their side, and uh, their wrist kind of is flexed, right? Like they're waiting for someone to give them a little tip.
0: Exactly. Um, Not to be confused with the clumpy palsy, uh, which is C8T1, and you get the claw hand deformity with that. Um, the other thing with the clunky palsy, because of the location, it can be associated with Horner syndrome. So, if you get anything that looks like a Horner syndrome, so the uh, anhydrosis, uh, medriasis, uh, and ptosis, Posis. then you should consider that this could be uh, a C8, a T1 injury.
1: And then the worst thing that can happen is you can actually get phrenic nerve palsy from a clavicle fracture. Uh, this. Um... It's pretty rare, but just watch out for it because it can cause some respiratory distress if your uh, diaphragm isn't getting innervated correctly. Next. How about... Do you want to talk since we just talked about all the... um... So speaking of big babies, uh, I wasn't talking about you, David, but (laughs) listen. Let's talk about LGA and SGA and all the AGA, A whatever, A's. You want to do that? Let's do it. All right, so... LGA is large for gestational age, and SGA is small for gestational age. So, SGA is lower than the 10th percentile, and LGA is above the 19th percentile for uh, gestational age. I want to talk about the 90th SGA. percentile. Yes. What did I say? 19th. Oh, well, that's not what I really said, but I'm sure it's <laughs> try not again. That way. So, yes, 90. <laughs> No, it's fine. We can keep it.
0: All right. So one of our babies that has already been delivered, we're going to do APGAR scores on. Our, let's say our one-minute APGAR is four, and our five-minute APGAR is eight. What does that tell us about the difference between the two APGARs?
1: Uh... That we did a good job and we got the baby to be better?
0: So the the one-minute Apgar actually reflects how the baby was doing while they were still in the uterus. And then the five-minute is how the baby's transitioning. So the eight is actually a good thing. The baby is transitioning well from the uterus into the world. If you have a five-minute Apgar less than seven, that shows that there's problems adjusting. Got it. Got it.
1: Got it. Okay. All right, David. So now let's talk about, like, the baby's born, everything's fine, they're okay. Now we're going to watch them, either outpatient or the first few days in the hospital. Let's talk about those kind of bad things that can happen in those time frame. Does that sound good? That sounds good to me. That time frame would be a better way to say it. So the first thing is, let's talk about the jobs of a newborn. They're supposed to eat, they're supposed to pee, and they're supposed to poop. And they really don't sleep, so let's be honest. That's their only job. That's kind of one of them. Those are their jobs. So those are the things that can go wrong. Uh, Let's do pooping. Okay. What if they don't pass their meconium within, you know, 48 hours?
0: We got to consider some problems going on in the belly. So something to think of would be Hirschsprung's. Uh, you do want to make sure, I hope yep. you did this on your newborn exam, is that they have a patent anus, because imperforate anus can cause the delayed meconium passage. And then if you have some kind of meconium plug, typically if you think of that, that's going to be associated with CF.
1: Yes, I agree. <laughs> All right. Other, other jobs with the, uh, with other problems with the bowels. So let's talk about necrotizing inner colitis, which I think most of us are fairly, fairly familiar with in our premature infants, which is the most you know likely, but don't be fooled. Term kids can get this too. Um, the biggest thing is they can get uh, bloody stools. Um, they get abdominal distension. X-rays can show pneumata- pneumatosis intestinalis, which is gas in the wall of the bowels. And then air in the biliary tree is bad. It's always bad. Like, no matter your age, but when you're a baby, it's probably neck.
0: And this is another one where you may get the, the x-ray to look at, and you'll see the air in the bowel walls, and that's pneumatosis intestinalis, and that's pretty classic for neck.
1: Now let's talk about peeing. The kid has to pee. <laughs> that's a rule. Gotta pee. So if they don't pee, first of all, what is a normal amount of voids for an infant? Do you know?
0: Isn't it three to four in 24 hours?
1: No, no, no. That's way too many, David. Just two? It's one void. No, it's only one. It's it's however old you are. So first day of life, you need one void. Second day of life, you need two. Third day of life, you need three. Fourth, four, and it goes all the way to seven, and then you're just peeing poo- pee as much as you want. Look how handy that is. Yeah, so it's very easy. So, if they're not voiding, if you don't have at least one void in 24 hours, then we need to evaluate the patient, right? Make sure they've been getting enough fluid. So, that means, are they getting enough colostrum? They should be able to void once with just colostrum. Um, You can cat them to see if there's something, if there's urine in there, maybe there's an obstruction. Uh, I would order a renal ultrasound if they're not voiding to make sure that they don't have a congenital uh, malformation that's. Keeping them from being able to actually make urine, or at least express urine. Okay. All right, and then the last, uh, the last job of a newborn, David, is to eat. Right. Yep. Some problems that come up with not eating are basically the biggest one is jaundice, and of course hypoglycemia. So if kid is not eating. Um, you got to figure out why are they sleepy and so they can't eat. So is their blood sugar super low? Like check a blood sugar and make sure that they're awake enough to eat. Are they septic? I mean, there's lots of reasons why a kid won't be awake enough to eat. If they are eating, then, um, you should be able to clear most of your, uh, your bilirubin. Um, we'll get into all of it, but basically you got to pee and you got to poop to get rid of your bilirubin. So that's part of their jobs. Again, pee and poop and eat. So let's talk about physiologic jaundice. This is super, super normal, and um, it happens all the time. That's why it's called physiologic, but it should um, not start within the first 24 hours of life. That is abnormal. That should bother you. Um, We use the Billy, everyone uses Billy tool. To be honest with you, everyone uses it wrong, but that's like not the point of this podcast today Uh, because it makes me crazy. But anyways, the whole point is you want to make sure that they don't need phototherapy to help get their jaundice um, under control. You use a little normogram and that tells you if you need to start phototherapy. So the most common cause of hyperbilirubinemia is physiologic jaundice, but you got to look at the other stuff too. So what are the other causes?
0: Right. So a common one is going to be breastfeeding jaundice because this fits right in with babies not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So if they're not eating, they're not peeing and pooping, they're not clearing their bilirubin. So breastfeeding jaundice usually happens in the first couple days of life. And that's going to give you an unconjugated uh, hyperbilly. And really the treatment is to just increase breastfeeding, get more in, get
1: more out. You know what I always call this, and to help all of the students, is breast not feeding jaundice. Because they're not feeding, which is the problem.
0: Exactly. And this this is something that's commonly confused with breast milk jaundice, or human milk jaundice apparently is what it's called now. This typically happens after about a week. um, And really there's nothing to do here because you're just going to keep feeding them. Um, if they get to a point where they need to have some help with phototherapy, you'd take care of that, but you don't stop feeding them.
1: It actually can take up to three months to resolve and you shouldn't need lights for this.
0: Yeah. So it's really just, it's really a timing issue when, when this, when these happen.
1: That's it. Those are those ones. Now, one thing I think that's really important to talk about since we're on jaundice it's always important to check an indirect and a direct uh, bili, so like a total, like a fractionated bilirubin, because especially the big, big bad one is if you have a bunch of direct bilirubinemia, that can be biliary atresia. And those kids do so much better long-term if they get their cassia uh, early. So you want to ref- re- refer them quickly.
0: And if you put a kid on lights that has a direct hyperbilirubinemia, you will get a bronze baby syndrome.
1: That's weird. I didn't know that. It's crazy. Yeah,
0: so they may present you a case where they put a kid under lights and then all of a sudden they have some bronzing on their skin and it's because somebody didn't fractionate their billy.
1: And while we're at it, let's talk about some ABO incompatibility. It's another kind of bad thing that you want to make sure is, you know, they're going to increase your risk. So basically this is when mom has O positive blood and baby doesn't and antibodies um, can cross and they can attack the baby's blood cells. Um, And so this increases their chance of having pretty significant pathologic jaundice that requires um, phototherapy and sometimes even exchange transfusions. Um, And so that's kind of a big, you want to watch those kids extra carefully. I like it. Well, I feel like that was a a nice little hodgepodge of a bunch of random neonatal stuff.
0: I agree. There, there's certainly more to cover, but I think that that gives you guys a, a good thing to listen to and hopefully uh, get you a couple extra
1: points. All right. Thanks, David. <laughs>